0: 2009 October 29th today is astronomy 141 lecture 25 requirements of life in the solar system so we've been talking about the solar system and its properties and it's time now to really turn back to the question of life since this is not so much an astronomy class as an astrobiology class we really want to now ask given what we know about the places in the solar system where we might want to start examining what are the requirements for life? Let's review those and then look at the requirements for life now in a planetary context. So before we've done this question of what are the requirements, what's the chemistry of life, we talked about life on Earth. But now let's take those lessons forward and say in a planetary context, what are some of the considerations comparing the properties of planets and what we know are the requirements for life and give us some clues as to where we might go start looking within our solar system for other living systems. So today we're going to be exploring the requirements for life and the factors that affect what we'll call planetary habitability. Now I'm going to use the word planet very loosely here. I'm not going to refer to just the eight planets, but basically any place in the solar system, any body in the solar system. So throughout the various uh, lecture and, and subsequent sections, I'm going to sort of intermediately say planetary and body. Just think place you can stand or swim or something like that, and the nomenclature will become clear. The English language kind of fails stuff sometimes. So what I want to do in this lecture is I want to first of all review the basic requirements for life. And these are very simply: We need a source of energy. We need complex chemistry, which usually means carbon chemistry. We need some kind of liquid solvent medium for that chemistry to occur in, which on Earth usually means liquid water. And we need protection from ultraviolet radiation, because UV radiation is a very powerful source of, of mutations and can do bad things. So let's look down the list of these things and see what we can get and where we're going to find these things in the solar system. We're going to find that the sunlight is probably the main power source of energy that we have to tap, but it depends upon the distance of the object, the body from the sun, and how shiny the surface of that body is, how utilizable that sunlight is. However, sunlight may not be the entire story we know that on Earth there are forms of life that exist in almost complete darkness, either deep in caves or deep in the Earth or deep in the oceans. We call these extremophiles. There's some suggestion from extremophiles on Earth that maybe we shouldn't be so provincial to just think of habitability in terms of available warm sunlight. That maybe we should also think about non-solar sources of energy that may come in and factor in as as to the habitability of a body. It's only recently when we've begun to examine this, this this particular point has actually given us some unexpected answers. Now we know that liquid water is an ideal solvent. It's the one that we use on Earth. That's the one we have on Earth. But other liquids might in fact work. So maybe again we shouldn't just simply have sunlight provinciality. Maybe we need to step back a little bit from what I would call water provinciality. Maybe there are other kinds of chemical solvents that'll work. And finally we want to look at the role of the planet's size, its mass and radius which gives its gravity, its internal heat, and the presence or absence of a magnetic field. All of these things play a role in whether the, ap- the planet will have an atmosphere and whether it can retain that atmosphere, and whether it's actually got a place where you could have some kind of liquid, for example, to be a solvent, in which energy available from sunlight or something else could then power the chemistry and metabolism of life. So we're going to take a back, back, closer look at the solar system, but now we're going to put our life goggles on and we're going to try to see how the requirements for life and the properties of the planets match up, maybe give us a head start on where to look. So the basic requirements for life are pretty straightforward. We've already mentioned them, but now we want to go into them in a little detail. First and foremost, we need a source of energy. We know that chemistry requires energy to occur. Metabolism of cells requires energy to occur. We cannot even imagine any kind of process which might be described as life. Even if it's non carbon chemistry in a non water solvent in something completely wacky, you still got to have energy. You've still got to have something that goes from order, from disorder to order, and that requires energy to organize things. Things don't just self organize without expending some energy. We need the energy to basically fuel the chemical reactions. These chemical reactions do not happen by themselves spontaneously. Certainly the ones involved with life do not. We also know that we're going to need energy to provide a source of warmth, that if we're going to have liquid water or perhaps other liquids, something's got to basically maintain them in that liquid state. So we need a source of energy. That's an absolute requirement. The second thing we need, again, construing life based on the lessons of the Earth, is that life is basically a chemical process. It's a physical and chemical process that goes on. And we know that certainly we need elements much heavier than hydrogen and helium for that (coughs) chemistry to go on. Hydrogen is just a proton and an electron. Its chemistry is basically boring without anything else heavier. And helium is not chemically reactive at all. It's a noble gas. It doesn't do anything but basically kind of just get out of the way. So we need something that's going to be abundant, that there's going to be a lot of it around, and we need it to have a rich chemistry. And not surprisingly, again, the lesson from Earth is that carbon chemistry provides that. Carbon is the basic building block of the kind of suite of complex molecules that are necessary for life. And so I've shown, this sort of as a stand-in here, of course, amino acids are the ones that are really the critical key pieces for life here on Earth, because it's amino acids that enable the synthesis of proteins, and proteins folded up into enzymes are extremely powerful catalysts for powering the metabolism of cells. So we like to think that the kind of rich carbon chemistry that goes on on Earth, we certainly know, must go on elsewhere in the solar system, and indeed elsewhere in the universe. We also know that that chemistry requires a liquid solvent medium to occur in. Complex chemistry just doesn't happen on tabletops. It happens inside of liquids. Liquids have a lot of properties that are important to us, and we want to review those and then ask, where do I find liquids? We think primarily liquid water is important for a lot of reasons, but maybe other liquids might serve the role as well. Where might those liquids exist in stable form? Are any of them useful, maybe? And finally, we need protection from harmful ultraviolet sunlight. We know that the mechanism of heredity, at least on Earth, is very fragile in the face of radiation, ionizing radiation. and Mutations basically get passed down through the hereditary mechanism, which are often fatal to the organism. So we know that certainly the experience of life on Earth is that land life did not emerge until the Earth had built up enough oxygen to build up an ozone layer to block out ultraviolet radiation. For billions of years, life on Earth swam in the oceans. It was only in the last 470-odd million years that life went up on land out of four-and-a-half billion-year history. So we certainly are going to be looking for exposed places are not going to be the places we want to look for life. We want to look for places that have protection from ultraviolet radiation because we know that the emergence of complex life requires protection from this extra in source of energy which does bad things. We can get it from an ozone layer, like we get on Earth. We can get it underwater, which is what happened on Earth for most of its history, or even happen underground. We find life forms that live underground, in rocks, in caves, that are protected from ultraviolet radiation. So this tells us some hints as to the kind of environments on the surfaces we should be looking. So these are the basic requirements for life. (laughs) Now let's go out and start applying those in a planetary context to what we know about the structure of planets and try to see what we can come up with. Let's start with energy. The primary source of energy for life on Earth is the sun, first and foremost. The sun is, in fact, the main source of energy, period, in the solar system. It pumps out a tremendous amount of energy every second. But how much of that sunlight, how much of that solar energy you receive, depends critically on how far away you are from the sun. Okay. First bit of math today. The sun's brightness depends on your distance as an inverse square law of distance. So the brightness of the sun, b, is equal to the luminosity of the sun, which is the total power output of the sun, divided by 4 pi times your distance squared away from it. The reason for that is, as shown in this picture here, which is cribbed out of your textbook, the sun is shining out into a sphere in all directions. As you go into larger and larger spheres, you've got the same amount of radiation going into that full sphere, but now that sphere spreads out into a larger and larger surface area. The surface area of a sphere d in radius is 4 pi d squared. So the brightness is simply the total amount of power divided by the area you're spreading it out over. The further you get, the more area it's spread out over, the less it's going to fall in your eye. So it's a very simple idea that brightness is an inverse square law of distance. So if I'm here on the Earth, one astronomical unit away, I put my hand out and point it face into the Sun, what I will feel is approximately one kilowatt per square meter of power. Let's say then I go out to Saturn, the orbit of Saturn, ten astronomical units away. Ten squared is a hundred. So instead of feeling this warmth of the Sun, I have one one one-hundredth the brightness of the Sun, ten astronomical units away. And therefore, I go from 1 kilowatt per square meter to 10 <laughs> watts per square meter. So the brightness, of the power of the sun, the amount that's available to me, if you will, if I spread a leaf, is going to get less and less as the square of the distance away from you. And it's an example of what we call an inverse square law. It's simply geometry, diluting the light as it spreads further and further out. So this is going to give us a fundamental limitation on where we're going to get sunlight. The sun's pumping its power out, but the further I get from the sun the bigger I've got to be to collect a certain amount of solar power. Well, I'm going to spare you the algebra to turn it into this formula, but basically the temperature of an object capturing sunlight... And warming up, and as it warms up, it re-radiates heat to get rid of its excess heat, and eventually reaching an equilibrium is the basic principle of establishing a temperature in sunlight. If you sit in the warmth of the sunlight, you will get to only a certain temperature. If you get too hot, you will radiate your excess heat away faster than the sun is replenishing it. If you're cold, you're radiating less, you will build up heat until you reach that balance again. It's called equilibrium temperature. Basically, in energy in is proportional to energy out. In this class, we're going to skip the derivation and go straight to the answer. When I do this problem for the sun, at some distance in astronomical units away, d, I find that the temperature of equilibrium is expressed in kelvins is 278 degrees Kelvin times a factor 1 minus ab to the 1 fourth power, divided by the square root of the distance. Okay, The distance part we can understand, but this 1 minus ab, this ab is called the albedo. The albedo is a me- mathematical measurement of how shiny an object is. A perfectly black object, an object that basically absorbs light at all wavelengths, has an albedo of zero. It's not shiny. That's zero shininess. An object which is so bright, it basically reflects or scatters every bit of sunlight that hits it, so that it absorbs nothing, has an albedo of one. And not surprisingly, if you absorb no radiation from the sun, one minus one is zero, you would be basically no solar heating. Reality lies somewhere in between. So on this table over here on the right of the diagram, I show the albedo, now represented not as a number from, unfortunately this is the only one I could find, not represented as a number from zero to one, but from one to a hundred percent. It's a different way of writing it. So a perfectly shiny object would have 100% of this scale, and you'll notice there isn't anything there because there's no natural objects that are 100% shiny. Water is actually surprisingly absorptive. It's actually somewhere between 5 and 8% shininess. That means that if something is between 5 and 8% shiny, that means something between 92 and 95% of the sunlight that hits water is absorbed by the water and heats it up. That's why the oceans are so effectively warmed by sunlight on the Earth. Dark wet soil runs between about 7 and 15 percent, 7 and 13 percent absorptive. So 90 percent in round numbers of the sunlight that falls on dark wet soil gets absorbed and only 10 percent gets reflected away. So pretty clearly, as you can see, this goes to various things. For example, uh, ices and snow, snow is really bright, right? Go outside on a snowy day when it's sunny just after a fresh snowfall. You better be wearing shades you're going to almost go snow blind. Snow can be very reflective. If it's kind of old and gritty, like laying down by the side of the road being splashed by coda buses, it gets down to 20 30% reflective. But fresh, brand-new snow can get upwards of 85% reflective. So if I cover a body in snow, it's not going to warm up very fast because it's reflecting most of the sunlight away instead of absorbing it. So this formula here, which is fairly useful for computing temperatures in our solar system, so we're looking at just the solar system version here, is twofold. Let's just pay attention to a single object that has a particular albedo based on what it's made of. For a given albedo, the equilibrium temperature goes, gets smaller as distance gets larger. So more distant objects are cooler. That's kind of obvious, right? The further you stand away from a fire, the cooler you feel, the less heat you feel from the fire but it it isn't just simply distant objects are cooler proportionally it goes down only like the square root of the distance so if I go I have to go a hundred times further away from the sun than the earth is to get one tenth the solar heating so even though I'm collecting it the temperature will drop by only a tenth I have to go a hundred astronomical units away so most of the solar system stays pretty warm there's a fairly large swath of the solar system where you get substantial uh, solar radiation The top part, the one minus the albedo, tells you something that should make sense, but is actually a little counterintuitive the first time you hit it, that shinier objects are cooler. The shinier an object is, the more it reflects sunlight, that means the less solar radiation it absorbs, the less solar radiation that heats it up. So it achieves equilibrium with the sun at a lower temperature. So for example, an ice ball, shiny ice ball out in space right next to a black block of coal the black block of coal, will be hotter, proportional by the ratio of their albedos, but only to the one-fourth power, the square root of the square root. So it's a really weak function, but it's important. This is an important idea about albedo because we're going to see a wide range of albedos and distances through the solar system. So it's not just how far away you are, it's in part what you're composed of on your surface. (coughs) Here's two examples where I've worked the numbers. The moon, which is dark rock, in fact it has an albedo of about 12%, that means it absorbs about 88% of the sunlight that hits it, and of course the moon orbits the Earth, so in round numbers it's an astronomical unit away. I punch the numbers into the formula, I get an equilibrium temperature of about 270 degrees Kelvin. That actually turns out to be slightly warm compared to the actual temperature of the moon, and the reason is because the moon is very slowly rotating and so it's doing a little barbecue roll, and so my simple calculation Which, to tell you the truth, the actual assumption in there is that we're dealing with a fast-rotating object is no longer valid. So this is approximately not so good, but it's in the ballpark. It gets you in the right order of magnitude, which is all I want. It tells you that the temperature of the moon in equilibrium is about like the temperature of the Earth, but a lot colder. And remember, the Earth would be frozen if it wasn't for its atmosphere. I'm going to contrast that with Enceladus. It's one of the icy moons of Saturn. In fact, it's the shiniest object in our solar system in terms of reflectivity. Enceladus has an albedo of 99%. It's ridiculously bright because, in fact, it's covered with fresh water ices blown up from the inside. We'll talk more about Enceladus because it's a very interesting place here next week. However, it's out at Saturn, which is nearly 10 astronomical units out, or 9.54 to be precise. If I plug in a 99% albedo, so only 1% of the sunlight is being absorbed and available for heating, and I put it nearly 10 astronomical units away, so I'm dealing with 100 times less sunlight per square meter, the temperature plummets to 30 degrees Kelvin. So Enceladus is going to be really cold. And this actually turns out to be a pretty good number. The minimum temperature on Enceladus is about 32, 33 degrees Kelvin. So as an approximation, it's pretty darn good. It actually gets up to about 75 degrees Kelvin. Seems like quite a bit, and that's because there's some other interesting stuff going on in Enceladus. <laughs> But if just sunlight was all that mattered, sunlight being absorbed and re-radiated, then this is how you would estimate the equilibrium temperature. It's not only how far away you are from the sun, but how shiny you are. The shinier you are, the cooler you are. Now, I can modify this, and the way I modify this is if I have an atmosphere that's heavy enough to have a greenhouse effect. If you have a greenhouse effect, it traps some of that radiation the planet's trying to shine off into space and wraps it in part of the atmospheric blanket, and the temperature rises. So you may remember from when we talked about the Earth's atmosphere, the Earth is 35 degrees Kelvin warmer than it would be if it had no atmosphere. The temperature of the Earth is more like 290 degrees Kelvin, or almost 300 degrees Kelvin on average, not 270. Now, of course, the Earth is a little bit darker. It gets to a slightly different temperature, but we have things like clouds that are really shiny, or polar caps that are shiny. So you can see how all I do is change things a little bit, and I can affect the thermal balance of the planet. If a global ice age occurred and we had snowball Earth, the Earth is covered in fresh snow, it suddenly becomes super shiny. Becomes super shiny, it's less effectively solar heated. And I have to rely not on sunlight to thaw the Earth, but on a runaway greenhouse effect because I shut down the carbon dioxide cycle. So it all comes in as a piece to this. So this is what affects the temperature of sunlight where you are in the solar system. But sunlight's not the whole story with energy. We know on Earth there are a class of objects called extremophiles, organisms that are adapted to live in extreme environments. In particular, there are two particular types of extremophiles, which I'm going to now give a sort of a, a, a sort of a rough and ready name for them. One of them I'm going to call hot forms of life. These are microbes that survive near boiling geysers, in deep pools, or in deep ocean, thermal or volcanic vents. And some of these things are not just simply microbes. For example, this cluster of tube worms. They're called Pompeian worms, in fact, clustered around a deep ocean vent. There's no sunlight down here. This is so far down in the ocean, the sun doesn't penetrate. These things, however, are living, and they're getting energy because they're in a warm environment, they're deriving the chemical energy for them from their metabolism by the metal, the oxidation of iron and sulfur from the volcanic vent. But these are capable of living in a warm environment far from any sunlight on the earth. An even more extreme example of non-sunlight earth is what we would call, co- what I'll call loosely dark life. This is life that simply never sees the sun. It's buried deep many kilometers underground, it's microbes that are buried deep inside of polar ice where the sun simply does not shine. These things don't have a nice rough and ready source of heat available to them, but just enough to be able to maintain enough chemical metabolism, even when frozen in ice. So it tells us that looking for habitability simply where the sun is bright is probably going to miss a lot of life. In fact, on the Earth we think that there's more biomass buried in the earth in endoliths, these extremophiles that are um, adapted to living deep inside rock, than there is biomass on the entire surface with every plant, animal, and microbe on the surface. So we shouldn't be provincial to just simply focus on sunlight. We should be open to the possibility that there may be planets which are internally warm enough that deep buried away from the sun, if the sunlight's inadequate, there are other sources of energy available to them for their chemistry and metabolism. Next, second criteria we know that's important for life is that complex chemistry that's involved requires a liquid solvent to occur in. We're not too worried about the complex chemistry because carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen are just everywhere in the solar system. The place is lousy with the stuff. But if you're going to get complex chemistry, you've got to dissolve those, those elements into something. You've got to dissolve those amino acids and carbon dioxide and all those other nifty compounds into some kind of solvent medium. The solvent provides basically a reaction medium for this stuff. You, you know, think about pouring two chemicals together. You've got the image in your mind. It acts, for example, when you actually get to the point of life chemistry. It can carry in food and it can carry away wastes. It has another property which is important, and that is that chemical reactions and metabolism produce energy, and you want to be able to carry off that excess waste heat and maintain a kind of thermal balance. Similarly, fluids have a kind of an insulating property to them. It lets you insulate those uh, organisms swimming inside of them from changes in the larger environment. And so it adds to basically helping maintain a proper thermal balance. The property specifically that we refer to physically is called a high heat capacity. You can pump a lot of heat into it without changing the state of it, without making the liquid boil off, or you can take heat out of the material without causing it to freeze immediately up. So you want a big heat capacity, the ability to stay in the same phase, stay liquid, subject to a lot of changes in sort of the heat load of the objects that are embedded within it, the life forms embedded within it. And finally, as I mentioned before, It provides protection. It's a place to swim. It's a place to protect you from ultraviolet radiation. And it provides, especially in the oceans, the ocean depth, a foot into the ocean, there's no more ultraviolet radiation penetrating into the ocean. That's why life could arise very quickly in the liquid oceans of the Earth. And it's a general property of a lot of liquids that they basically provide a, a penetration depth literally measured in inches or feet to block out ultraviolet radiation, whereas the ultraviolet radiation would come straight through a non oxygen atmosphere. So liquid solvents are very useful. Now we know from Earth, and we certainly guessed that elsewhere in the universe, that water is the ultimate solvent. It's made out of a extremely abundant stuff, hydrogen plus oxygen. And we know that's one of the CHON, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen elements, that are essential for life. It has a number of other, so in addition to being extremely abundant, it has a wonderful property that it's liquid between 0 and 100 degrees Celsius. This range of thermal energy turns out to be about perfect for the energy of the type of chemical bonds that occur in organic chemistry. Not too hot that those bonds break apart. Not too cold that you don't have enough energy to get over the barriers to form the bonds in the first place. It's almost perfect. It actually works nicely as a solvent. It dissolves most of the chemicals that are important, organic chemicals that are important for life, are water-soluble. Some are not, but they actually play important roles by not being water-soluble. So it's not a perfect requirement, but it certainly helps. Water has a huge heat capacity. Water is a wonderful insulating material. It's less dense when it freezes, so it has this wonderful property that when you freeze water, the ice floats to the top and leaves the liquid below, so it freezes from the top down and actually maintains a liquid layer that ultimately ice also works like a marvelous insulating layer in itself and forms a nice protective barrier. And it has this wonderful property that has this really nice high surface tension, so you can actually form it into liquid, you can flow easily over things, it doesn't evaporate quickly, it's wonderful stuff, water's great. But it's not, so we we think, I think it's a good assumption. If you just wanted to say, where am I going to go looking for life? Go find, you know, remember the old statement, follow the money. Well, follow the liquid water. If you want to find life in the solar system, look for liquid water. That's your best bet. And I think that's probably the safest bet. But there are alternatives. There might be other liquid solvents that would work. Now again, to put, remind you of water, H2O, liquid from 0 to 100 degrees Celsius, which means it has a 100 degrees Celsius liquid range. That's a big range of temperatures. Going down in decreasing temperature, the next up again, we must be made of abundant stuff. So we've got to be made of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, or nitrogen. Well, nitrogen and three hydrogens makes ammonia. It's liquid from 78 to 33 degrees below 0 Celsius, or about a 45 degrees Celsius range. This has a lot of interesting industrial um, applications. In fact, it's used quite a bit because it's actually cold and frozen when water would be completely fro- um, I'm sorry, it's cold and liquid when water would be completely frozen. It's a marvelous solvent medium. It's got a good temperature range. It's actually got a great range of properties for heat capacity. Unfortunately, it's like ferociously toxic. so it's kind of nasty to deal with. Next down in temperature is methane carbon and four hydrogens, so we're still playing the CHO and abundances there, so it's going to be abundant. It's liquid from minus 182 to minus 164 degrees Celsius, which is actually a pretty narrow range of about 18 degrees Celsius. But even though it's really ridiculously cold, it turns out that methane can be liquid under certain properties. It has a triple point. It has three phases, liquid, solid, and gas. It's gas on the Earth. The primary source of methane on the Earth is, in fact, in the stomachs of cows, both burping and other places I shouldn't talk about on a public podcast. But it also turns out if you go out to places like Titan, Titan, actually, we've discovered on the moon Titan of Saturn, lakes of liquid methane. Titan has a methane cycle that looks like an analog of the water cycle on Earth, as we're going to see next week. So this is certainly a plausible medium, Although it's extremely low temperature, does not sound like a place where you're going to be finding a lot of organic chemistry, but we're not so sure. Finally, ethane. It's basically made up of two methanes, and you get rid of a couple of the hydrogens and put the carbon bond between them. Ethane is a marvelously stable liquid. It has a much larger range, 94 degrees Celsius range of liquidity, from minus 183 to minus 89 degrees Celsius, Ethane has a lot of applications. I don't know if any of you worked or have worked in a scanning electron microscope lab, but liquid ethane is actually used for preparing samples and freezing them because it has a marvelously big heat capacity, and it's really easy to handle. It's kind of nasty, but it's easy to handle. And this, in fact, is a rig taken from an electron microscope lab where a sample is being frozen here, quick flash frozen, in, in liquid ethane. If you tried to slow freeze it, big water crystals would form and blow your little thing apart and you wouldn't be able to see what it looks like under the electron microscope. You want to flash freeze something. Liquid nitrogen is okay for flash freezing. It's a common flash freezer. But the problem is it doesn't have much heat capacity. So it's not going to be able to soak up heat before it bubbles off. So ethane turns out to be abundant on Titan as well. And in fact, methane and ethane may in fact be the liquid water equivalence, probably methane is really the water of Titan, and ethane may also play a role. It's a solvent, but at extremely low temperatures. So maybe there are options. Maybe there are other alternatives that we should be open to, even if, to be frank, we haven't figured out how to get lifelike met- metabolic chemistry to be going at minus 180 degrees Celsius. So, But it could still be there. The universe always surprises us. Okay, so we got energy, And we've got a solvent medium. And the solvent medium are things that exist in a fairly narrow range of temperatures where they're liquid. Outside those ranges, they're either flashed into vapor or they're frozen solid. So we have to look for places where those possible media are going to be liquid. Another slightly less obvious requirement for life in a planetary context is it would be really nice to have a place to stand or a place to swim in. Life wants to be somewhere. Chemistry has to occur somewhere. So let's look across the solar system and see what we got. Well, let's start with the the eight planets up here. The inner four terrestrial planets are small and rocky. They have solid surfaces and place to stand. They have rocky surfaces where liquid can pool and form oceans for something to swim in. The only place we know of right now where that's occurring is right here on the Earth. But maybe the other planets have some possibilities in that regard as well. The giant planets of the outer solar system, the two gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, and the two ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, are really big but have no solid surfaces, no place to stand, no place to swim. So we're probably not going to get much traction looking for life out on the gas giants. But associated with the gas giants are a number of very small, rocky and icy bodies. They are at least, to a first approximation, a place to stand whether conditions on them could be warm enough that some of that water or methane or ethane could be liquid and therefore give you a place to swim well that's a question we're going to be addressing over the next couple of lectures so certainly the possibilities if you asked me you know 5 years ago 10 years ago where you should go looking for life I would have said earth and mars eh, probably not mercury's out venus is out but now in fact some of the most interesting possibilities may not be mars they may, in fact, be among these small, rocky, icy worlds of the outer solar system. But they're far away from the sun. The sunlight's cold. Yes, but the lesson of extremophiles is sunlight's not the whole answer. There could be another source of heat. If there's enough heat and liquid water and organics and protection from UV radiation, I have four requirements for life in an unexpected place. So let's look at some of the things that might play a role in planetary context. Okay, stand is certainly one of them. Another turns out to be an interesting factor in determining the potential habitability of a planet is internal heat. Okay. Inside of the Earth, when you open up the inside of the Earth, there's a lot of latent heat. There's heat left over from formation because it's big, as we saw the other day. And there's like additional radioactive heating that keeps the Earth a little hotter. It isn't just cooling off. It's slightly replenishing some of its lost heat. <laughs> what this internal heat does in the Earth is it drives convection currents. It drives convection currents up in the mantle, and these convection currents in the mantle are what drive plate tectonics on the surface of the Earth. Plate tectonics are very important to the Earth and for the Earth's habitability. Because, as you'll remember, plate tectonics is one of the key agencies behind the carbon dioxide cycle. You get water, washing carbon di- liquid water washes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It flows into the ocean, reacts with calcium, precipitates out as carbonate rocks. Those carbonate rocks get incorporated into the ocean crust. And as plate tectonics carries that ocean crust below the surface of the Earth, it locks up the carbon in the deep interior. Shut down plate tectonics, you shut down the storing of carbon in the deep crust of the Earth. The second part is, with a warm interior, you have volcanism, which returns carbon to the atmosphere and closes the loop of the cycle. planet cools off so it's no longer molten, you shut down volcanism. You shut down the carbon cycle. Well, what happened when the Earth suddenly got cold and shut down the carbon cycle by shutting down the ocean channel? We had snowball Earth. The Earth froze up because the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere could no longer be washed down to the Earth. There was no longer a way for the Earth to warm back up. So why didn't the Earth stay frozen? Because plate tectonics was still active and volcanism started belching out carbon. And with carbon not able to precipitate back into the, into the oceans... The balance tipped unstably the other way. Runaway greenhouse warmed the earth and melted the ice. What if I take a a world like the earth, shut down its volcanism, put it in snowball earth, but its interior is cold now, and there's no more volcanism. It will never recover. It will never be able to recover on its own because there's no way to build up carbon dioxide again. So we actually are a habitable planet because of plate tectonics. It's not something you would have thought was an important factor. If the Earth was solid all the way to the core, we probably wouldn't be standing here talking about it. The Earth would have frozen over a long, long time ago and never thawed. So the Earth is habitable because of plate tectonics. So, thank you, plate tectonics. Now, there's another thing that convection can do, and not in the mantle, but down in this liquid metallic portion in the differentiated core. The liquid metallic part of the core here... When you get convection currents in a conducting fluid combined with the rotation of the Earth, it generates the Earth's magnetic field. When you have a magnetic field, it actually turns out to protect the Earth's atmosphere from damage by by the solar wind, by the constant breeze of charged particles coming off the sun. That's a less obvious help for life, but we'll see in a moment how that works. Now, taking now the fact that having a warm interior gives you some tectonic activity in a magnetic field as an add to life, where does this actually come into play? Well, remember we learned a couple days ago that how long it takes a massive body that's differentiated to cool off scales like the size of the body. Two times bigger, two times longer to cool off, and so it stays hotter longer. Here's some real numbers. Planets or moons that are more than 50% the mass of the Earth are expected to still be hot today. Their cooling time is longer than the age of the solar system. Sure enough, the two planets that are more than 50% the size of the Earth and not gas giants are Venus and the Earth, and both have molten interiors to this day. However, a planet or moon that is less than half, if less than 50% of the mass of the Earth will have been able to cool off in the 4.5 billion year history of the solar system. The moon is frozen solid all the way to the core. It has no tectonic activity whatsoever. Similarly for Mars, we think, and for Mercury. Mars is kind of just on the line. It could maybe still have a couple of pockets of hot inside of it. Maybe not. We really don't know for sure. But Mars probably is solidified mostly all the way down. It's almost cooled all the way down. In fact, we think from the lack of geologic activity visible on its surface in the last few hundred million years, that large-scale tectonic activity has been shut down for at least the last half billion years. So these things have begun to cool, and they cool because they're small. So if we're going to see that tectonics has an important role to play in habitability, it kind of lowers the habitability of Mars to be a cold world today. But... Go back in the past, a billion years, two billion years, Mars was geologically active. So maybe this is telling us that if life needs a certain amount of geological activity, maybe we're not looking for life on Mars today so much as evidence of past fossil life on Mars. So it still keeps that door open. What about magnetic fields? Well, magnetic fields are interesting because they actually protect atmospheres from stripping by the solar wind. The solar wind is made of charged particles. Charged particles cannot cross a magnetic field line. They get bounced by it and deflected by it. So the Earth has a huge magnetic field because of its dynamo inside of its rotating, convecting metallic core. And so as a consequence, when the solar wind goes blowing past the Earth, it blows around the Earth because it's deflected by the Earth's magnetic field. The solar wind doesn't touch our atmosphere, and so the atmosphere stays intact. Mars early in its history, probably had a strong magnetic field and was able to deflect the solar wind. But as it cooled off, eventually the interior solidified, the dynamo shuts down, and the magnetic field fades away. And then it's basically exposed to the full fire hose of the solar wind. And so Mars is already small. It's already got weak gravity. It can barely hold on to its atmosphere. And now it's trying to hold on to the atmosphere while the sun is going (laughs) blowing on it it very quickly blows the atmosphere off the planet. So you start losing your atmosphere quickly. So magnetic fields are important, but you lose your magnetic field once you solidify, even if you had it in the past. So again, it's this idea that we maybe should be looking in the past of Mars for the conditions that may have been conducive to life as we understand them on the Earth. Finally, the size of a planet affects the ability of the planet to retain atmospheric gases. It depends upon both the mass and the temperature. And again, we've seen this plot a lot, where I've plotted the temperature of the upper parts of the atmosphere on the x-axis, from hot to cool, from left to right, and the escape speed of various gases, in this case, the escape speed from that upper atmosphere in kilometers per second, and then the lines show the thermal speeds for various gases. If a planet is above the lines, the gas is retained, If the planet is below the lines, the gas is lost to space. The gas evaporates away. So, another factor in a body's habitability is the size of the atmosphere, if any, that it can retain. If a body is too small, like Mercury, and too hot, the gravity is too weak to hold on to its atmosphere, it loses its atmosphere. It simply won't have one. Now this depends a lot on local temperature, because Mercury close to the Sun is going to lose it a lot faster than a Mercury-sized object deep in the outer solar system where it's colder and the atoms' all molecules all move slower. They can be held onto by a smaller world. However, you can go too much the other way in terms of building an atmosphere as well. If a body is too physically large, if it's so big that it actually can begin to hold onto hydrogen and helium you suddenly can build an atmosphere out of a vast reservoir of material in the early solar system. And so you tip over from being something like, on one extreme, you're airless like Mercury. On the other hand, you get to tip over into all gas, or mostly gas, like Mer- like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. You build and retain these big, heavy, hydrogen-helium atmospheres. When that happens, you got two problems. Number one is you got nowhere to stand. And number two, the conditions can be so hot or such high pressure that they become utterly inhabitable. You basically can push yourself past the limits of habitability. The other problem is you build those big atmospheres out of hydrogen. Once you start getting hydrogen-rich atmospheres, you start getting into the realm of reducing chemistry, and you basically shut down all the forms of chemistry that are more familiar for the types of life on Earth. So, too small, too big... So there's some kind of happy medium which is just right. Not surprisingly, this is the first introduction we're seeing in this class to what's known as a classic Goldilocks problem. Just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. There's also not too small, not too big, but right-sized. And right-sized seems to be somewhere between a third and ten times the mass of the Earth. But we'll we'll talk about that in more detail on a later day. So here's this picture we've seen before of the mass of objects in the solar system versus their semi-major axis. Objects that fall into this gray band here are too small to hold on to their atmosphere. And the way I've done the calculation is the mass tells you what the gravity is holding it on and where it is distant from the Sun sets the surface temperature. So not surprisingly, close to the Sun where you're hotter, you need to have a higher gravity to hang on to gas. But further from the sun, where it's colder, you can be lower mass because the atoms are moving slower, and you can hang on to them with a smaller gravity. So this gray band pretty much says anything below this band here is too small to hold on to an atmosphere anywhere in the solar system, if in this zone. And not surprisingly, Mercury, half of the Gal- lightweight Galilean moons, the moon, the asteroid Ceres, all of the asteroids, and essentially all of the Kuiper Belt objects fall into that class. Even the tiny Kuiper Belt objects, which are way out in the frigid parts of the outer solar system, are not cold enough to hang on to even the slightest size of an atmosphere. The other tip of the balance, if I calculate it, is above this line in this gray band, your mass is so big that you can now begin to, get, to gather up hydrogen and helium, and you build a big hydrogen-helium atmosphere. So those in this band are too big, and they build their atmospheres too heavy to be habitable. So the Goldilocks zone is the white band. The Goldilocks zone is where you're not so big, not so small, that you can actually hang on to your atmosphere, but not build one so big it it crushes you, or you don't lose it within a few billion years. And you'll see there's only a handful of places that can do this. Venus, Earth, and Mars. A Couple of the moons of Jupiter and the moon of Titan. Triton, the giant moon of Neptune, is right on the line, and in fact has a weak little atmosphere of nitrogen. Pluto is just below the line, but it actually has a weak atmosphere. And Eris? We don't know yet. So these are places where there might be atmospheres. Now, the other factor of size is if the interior gets cold, it shuts down its magnetic field and can't protect you from the solar wind. I can compute roughly where that is. This yellow line is where objects will have cooled solid or solid enough in 4.5 billion years. Come back 2 billion years later, that pl- that line will move up because things keep cooling. Hmm, only Venus and Earth are left. Everything else is gone. But then again, this is only assuming that all the heat you have is just the heat you were born with plus radioactivity. We should be prepared to be surprised. Now, liquid water. If I combine the conditions of liquid water in the sun, I find that liquid water at one atmosphere of pressure exists in this very narrow band. Too close to the sun, it's too hot for liquid water. It all vaporizes. Too far from the sun, it all freezes. Not too hot, not too cold. Just right is an extremely narrow band. And I draw a blue line with the allowed region of where your interior is warm enough to have a protective magnetic field, you are big enough to hold on to an atmosphere but not so big that you built a hydrogen atmosphere, and you have liquid water. Look at the size of the blue square, and guess who's in the middle? Us. But Venus and Mars just off to one side. Run this clock backwards a billion years. The cooling line goes down because the planets are hotter in the past. Mars comes in the line. But Venus, Mercury, never does. These are the places we should be looking for life in the inner solar system. But Venus has killed itself with a runaway greenhouse effect. That leaves us Earth and Mars. Now we're going to get crazy. Who says liquid water has got to be the only game in town? The green line is the line for liquid methane and liquid ethane at one atmosphere pressure. It's Titan, the giant moon of Saturn, which is the only moon that has an atmosphere, an atmosphere of nitrogen and methane, on which we've detected methane lakes and ethane seas. So maybe we should take a closer look at Titan. But you say, wait a minute, isn't it too cold inside? Maybe not, because I haven't talked about another source of heating. It's a moon of a giant world. Moons of giant worlds are subject to tidal forces. Tidal force is heat. So there are other sources of heat besides heat of formation and radioactivity. And we only got clued into these when we flew the spacecraft by and planets were, moons were active that should have been frozen solid. So these are places we could go looking for life. So where do we go looking for life in our solar system? Well, we can look around us. Mars may have had liquid water in the past and a thicker atmosphere in the past. So maybe we should be looking at Mars today because of remnants of life or look for the fossils of life on Mars. Europa. Europa is heated by tides from Jupiter. It has a deep uh, layer of ice. If that layer of ice is actually liquid and it's tidally heated, we have liquid water, we have heat, we have organics, It's one of the places we might look and it would be protected by the outer shell of ice from the ultraviolet radiation and the intense radiation of Jupiter's magnetic magnetic field. Enceladus, that bright white moon of of Saturn, it's got fresh white ice on it. Turns out it has liquid water geysers we've observed on it. It has liquid water in its deep interior. It has heat from some kind of uh, combination of radioactivity and tidal heating and it has tons of complex organics. It's another target. It's one that surprised the hell out of everybody when Cassini took the picture. And finally, Titan. Titan's a long shot. It's got methane chemistry and complex organics. It's got a liquid cycle and a heavy atmosphere, and it's got some source of internal heat. Here's where we're going to look, and we'll start tomorrow by taking a close look at Mars. Any questions? Okay. In that case, I will see you all tomorrow.